So uh, as you guys know, origin stories are very important, right? This is especially true with Spider-Man, probably out of all the superheroes in the universe, at least in the Marvel universe, uh, that Spider-Man, regardless of whether he is being played by Tom Holland or Andrew Garfield or Tobey Maguire or, I learned from the internet this week, apparently Neil Patrick Harris, right? Uh, the origin story of Spider-Man is the same and it has to be told. That bio, it, it remains very consistent because for us to understand Spider-Man, you gotta understand his background. There's this nerdy kid, that's very important. He was a nerdy kid, right? He gets bit by a radioactive spider. Then there are always some kind of like hilarious hijinks that ensue as he like learns how to use his powers and, uh, and uses them in a lot of ways to benefit himself. But then there's this tragic, traumatic moment in a Superman bio where his uncle, who's very close to him, passes away. And what is it that Uncle Ben says to Spider-Man? Right? With great power comes great responsibility. I remember when Uncle Ben said that to Tobey Toby Maguire. It's, it gets seared in your mind because it's such an important part of the Spider-Man bio. And what it does, that origin story, is it sets up everything. It sets up the tension inside this character of wanting to use his power for himself but also feeling a sense of responsibility to use it for other people. It sets up for us this sense of him being an outsider and trying to work his way in. It gives us the core of, of, this, of the story, of the plot. It puts it in motion. It's the Spider-Man mythos. What it tells us is, what it reminds us of is that origin stories matter. There's a Scottish uh, philosopher who says it like this. He says, I can only the answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart, that our origin story matters. And that's what we're gonna be diving into uh, all of the spring as we study the book of Genesis, specifically the first 11 chapters of Genesis, because Genesis is our origin story. And this origin story, guys, it's of tremendous importance if you were ever gonna understand the story arc of the Bible. Right, the story arc of the Bible, it unfolds in kind of four main movements. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. That's the biblical storyline. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And two of those major events, fall or creation and fall, happen in the first three chapters. Half the story right there. And we spend the rest of scripture unpacking what happens in those chapters, what comes after it. God's plan to redeem humanity that opens and begins in those first three chapters. And our hope for a consummated world, for what this world looks like when it's made new, how do we get pictures of that, images of that from those first three chapters of scripture. It sets into motion the plot of the Bible, the plot of our world. It introduces us to all of the main characters. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? The story of Genesis is incredibly relevant for the questions that you and I are wrestling with in our day-to-day -day lives. Who am I? Who is God? What am, I, what am I doing here? 
What should I be doing with my time? What's my calling? How do I understand these things in my life called relationships, like with my family, with my spouse, with my friends? Why is it all so hard? Why is there love in the world and why is there evil in the world? Genesis situates us in the world so that we can begin to unpack the answers to those questions. And in the same way that Genesis does that for us, it did that for the people that it was first written to. You think of the Israelites coming out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They had totally lost their identity as a people. They lived in a country and under an oppressive system of rule that had a totally different set of gods than the gods that they were told about, than the God they were told about that they worshiped. And they had been systematically over 400 years dehumanized, abused, put to serve someone else's ends and goals. And through a miraculous series of very intense events, they are delivered from slavery very quickly. And as they are wandering in the wilderness, they're asking the same questions we are asking. Who are we? Who, who is God? How, how do those things come together? What are we to be about in the world? What is love? Where does evil come from? They're asking all of those same questions. And this story was written in part to answer those questions for them. This question of origin is a question we've been wrestling with as humans since the dawn of time. So I'm gonna invite Savannah to come up. Savannah is our reader this morning. And Savannah's gonna read for us Genesis 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. So we're gonna be doing some very small chunks of scripture. If you have your Bible, you can open up there to Genesis uh, 1. It's pretty much the first page of your Bible after you get past the table of contents, if you're wondering. It will also be up here on the screen uh, with us if you want to go ahead and, and follow along. Genesis 1, 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, we are grateful that you would choose to tell us a story about who we are, a story that is a true story. Lord, a story that you want to shape our lives as we respond to you. And so we pray this morning, Lord, as we study even these two verses, that you would be waking us up to who we are and to who we are in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this origin story, guys, here in Genesis, it starts where all origin stories start, in the beginning. But the beginning that Genesis is talking about is like the beginning, beginning. This is the origin stories of all origin stories. The author of Genesis is telling us, in the beginning, before there was anything. In the beginning, what would you put in that spot? God, yeah. That's what the scripture puts there. And what we put in that next blanket tells us so much about who we are as people. It shapes so much of our lives as people in the beginning. Like I said, this is a question that has fascinated humanity from our very beginning. From our very beginning. And what you gotta know is that this story of Genesis, right, it was written into a world that had its own answers to that question of what happened in the beginning. 
It entered into, when this story was written, it came into a world of all kinds of rival uh, cosmologies is what you would call this. A cosmology is your understanding of the beginning of things. And the, the context that this story was entering into, th the kind of stories that were being told were totally different than the story we get here at the beginning of the Bible. Like for example, there's this one uh, from the Babylonians where this god, Marduk, is fighting this other god, Tiamat. And they have these huge armies made up of gods and armies and there's this violent clash back and forth and finally Marduk slays Tiamat and from her corpse he creates the universe. So many of these origin stories that were being told around this time were stories of violence, of violence between gods, of violence between gods and the elements in this universe. And the gods had to fight with violence to suppress what was to create something. And all of the creation that came out of these stories was creation that was from something else, like the body of a dead god. Or they would cut off their own limbs and that would become other gods who then ruled over certain elements. And against all of those stories, in contrast to all of those stories, we get the biblical story. In the beginning, God. Nothing else. No one else. One God, singular, singular. And that first sentence is a peaceful scene. It's majestic. God is unrivaled with absolute authority and unquestioned sovereignty. That before anything else, God. That what the author of Genesis, what, what Moses was proclaiming is to the nation of Israel, your God is so different than all of these other gods who have to compete and fight for control. He says, that's not your God at all. Your God is alone. He's singular. He's high and lifted up. He's above every force in nature because he created all of it. God. And that God is our God the God who is preexistent, the God who is before everything, the great I am, the eternal God who was and always was. He's eternal, he's self-existent, he's free. And even in that space, what we know about our God is even there, into eternity past, what's true about our God is that our God is love. That has always been true about God. And do you know, that is something that can only be true about the Christian God. Because for love to exist, there has to be an object of love. But how can God have anyone to love if all there is is himself? But what we see, even here in these first two verses of Genesis, is this sense that God is, is one God, and yet he's one God who exists in three persons, what we call the Trinity, right? A Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that God, into eternity past, has always been love because God has always existed in love, in a relationship with himself, with the persons of the Trinity. So while God is, is eternal, while he is absolutely free, while he is totally independent, that he is also, amidst all those other attributes, always love. And that is the God who is at the center of our story. In the beginning, God. God is the subject of the very first sentence in all of scripture. And how appropriate is that? Because ultimately, what we know about this story is that from beginning to end, from creation to consummation, this story is all ultimately about God. 
in the first chapter of Genesis, God's name is mentioned 35 times. That this first chapter is shouting at us that God is the center of our stories. That if we are going to understand who we are, what we have to understand is that God is to be at the center of who we are. And this worldview, in the same way that it challenged these uh, cosmologies of the ancient Near East, it challenges the cosmologies that we often find ourselves swimming in and very naturally absorbing into our lives. Right? The cosmology that is all around us is that of modernism. This idea that the scientific method through observation that we can, we can come to know everything that there is to know in the entire universe. And I was doing a bit of reading that was, I will just tell you, beyond my reading level in all kinds of scientific theories this week about the origins of the universe. And what scientists will say is that they can get all the way, they claim to be able to get all the way back to like one 10 to the 36th power of a second after the Big Bang. There's this thing, the great inflation, the universe, I don't even, I'm not even going to go into all of it, but it's a lot of stuff, okay? Uh, but what, what even, uh, what any scientist will admit is that trying to get beyond that 10 to the 36th power of a second into the time before that is, uh, in the words of one of the articles, it gets a little murky. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's a fair way to put it, right? It's hard to understand is what they're saying, to penetrate back beyond that measure of time, but then to go back before the creation of time, the invention, the advent of time itself, before the Big Bang, how are you gonna get back there? But doing that is like what happened to me in the last week when I finally changed out my old license plate for my new license plate, which I'm sure all of you did much further in advance than I did it. But I finally did it, right? And I took out my screwdriver to undo the screws to, but you can't do it with a screwdriver because it's not a screw that holds a license plate to the car, it's a bolt. So I spent several minutes sitting there trying to think, how do I get the screwdriver to do this because I don't want to go back to the tool bag and get the wrench. It was impossible. I had to go get a different tool, right? And what I'm saying is that the tool of the scientific method, which has given so much to us, cannot get us past the beginning of time. And that when scientists start to theorize about this, well, maybe our universe broke off of another universe and then it bumped, and that's kind of what all we're talking about now is faith. That what infinitely exists behind all this is a universe, so the thing that's infinite is matter or the thing that exists infinitely is force, or the thing that exists infinitely, right, already now we're back into the realm of faith. And that's not a bad thing. That's not an indictment on science. It's just to recognize that even the scientific method has its limits. And the worldview that, that comes out of that, of believing that the scientific method that can solve every problem for us, that it can teach us everything there is to know, is that it leaves us inhabiting a universe that is cold and lonely. a universe that's without purpose or direction. A universe where love is boiled down to the chemical reaction of oxytocin in our brains. But you would never look at your child or your spouse and say, I am overcome with the hormone oxytocin right now for you. And because of that, I have all these other chemical reactions that are moving me to want to do something for you. You would never say that, right? That's ridiculous. You would say, I love you. 
because we believe that as people and, and even the experiences, the sensory experiences that we have are more than a chemical reaction. They're a part of something bigger. They have purpose and they have direction. But friends, that is a part of a worldview that assumes that we live in a universe of purpose and direction and that there's a God of love who is behind those things. And it's in the Christian story and the Christian worldview that, that we hear the yes to that. Yes, that is true. That's our God. In the beginning, God created. The word for create there is the word bara. And that verb is only ever used in the Old Testament uh, with the subject God. Only God creates. Other people make, but only God creates. That only God, only God creates because only God can create something from nothing. That's true creation. That God was not using any raw materials. It wasn't the body of another God or the blood of another God or his own finger. That out of nothing, God created everything that is. Only our God can create, can barah. And he created everything. He's the ultimate creative Right, that this moment, it says that the world was formless and void. Another way of translating that is the world was wild and waste. It's, it's essentially as if there's a blank canvas. And that's the way in the ancient world you would describe the blank canvas of the universe was to say it was tovu avohu. It was wild and waste. It was, it was void. And imagine, it's as if, uh, it's as if God is, this, is an artist. He's like Van Gogh standing before a blank canvas that's crying out for order and for creation. It's in the moment before a song write starts, before anyone has strummed a chord, before anyone has brought the name of the song they've been thinking about or the verse they've been thinking about. In this pregnant moment where you know there's a song that's in this room that's about to burst out of us and become something, in the moment right before that, that's the moment that is captured here in the scriptures. When the world was crying, when the universe was b- before he even existed and the void was crying out to be created, God created. And God decided to fill that space. That's what it means that God created, that he filled it with beauty. Out of the overflow of himself, out of his abundance and love, he created. And our God only makes beautiful things. So in this darkness and void, in this tovu avohu, in this wild and waste that God creates, that he creates beauty and he creates everything that is in existence. Every galaxy and every quark, every photon and every black hole, all the material, every subatomic particle of every atom and all of the dark matter and dark energy that I don't even know what we're talking about when we talk about those things. God created all of it. And that all of creation exists only as it exists in relationship to him. That he is the artist. He alone is independent. And our existence as his creation, as everything in creation, it's contingent. It depends on him. And what that says to kind of the postmodern worldview that we live in is 
right? Postmodernism tells us that reality is socially constructed. That the reality that we live in, the world that we live in, is all a product of our human relationships. And in a sense, it's true. The Bible would say, yes, that the world is constructed out of relationship, but the relationship that it's constructed out of primarily is our relationship to God. That all of us exist, that we live and move and have our being because the God who created us pours it into us. That our God is constantly creating and recreating in every moment. He's holding it all together. That we owe our existence to our creator, God. Which means, as this commentator David Atkinson put it this week, our deep human concern for making things better is itself a reflection of the character of God. Our deep human concerns for making things better is itself a reflection of the character of God. That the work that we engage in I'm looking off you thinking about the jobs that you have. That the work that we are engaged in, the work uh, to make humanity better, to make things better, that's a reflection of God. And the creative work that so many of you do, uh, all of that work is founded on the creative work of our God. Although one of the ways that we get to honor, uh, honor this creator God is in the good and beautiful creativity that we have that we pour out into the world around us. Guys, here's what you need to know about God. Well, there are a lot of things, but here's one of the things, okay? Is that uh, our God, he never sold his song catalog. He's never gonna do it. Even for like $300 million or, or however much Bob Dylan got for his song catalog. It's never gonna happen because our God has a deep, uh, a affection for his creation, that he will never give it away or hand it over to anybody else, that it belongs to him, and that there is a deep intimacy and connection between God and his creation. And, and don't think about it like, a, like widgets in a widget factory, you know? Like God created the process that creates all of these little objects that now spin out. That's deism. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about creation like Steve Jobs style, Okay? And you, if you know, you've experienced Steve Jobs style for those of you who don't turn all of our group messages green, who keep them blue, thank you. When you open your iPhone, right, and the packaging that it's in, it, you know how it feels like you're having a spiritual experience when you take it out of the box and then you like peel the off the, the you know what I'm talking about? Okay, that's on purpose, guys. That's what Steve Jobs is all about. He said, I want people to have a spiritual experience when they're opening their Mac products because the whole thing to Steve was art from beginning to end. There's this moment where they're looking at the first Macintosh computer and they're showing Steve the, I, I guess, do we call him Mr. Jobs, Steve? I don't know, okay. So we're, they're showing Steve the, the circuit boards and he looks at them and he says, look at those memory chips, that's ugly. The lines are too close together. And one of the engineers who was new on the team was like, what are you talking about? No one's gonna see these things, they're inside the computer. That was not the point. 
the point is that everything that he did, he wanted, he saw it as art. And so it all needed to be beautiful regardless of whether or not anyone else would ever see it. That on the first Mac computers, he had all of the engineers uh, sign their names on the, on the machine that imprinted the, the frames of the computers so that on the inside of the computer would be the names of all these people. Because real artists sign their work is what he told his team. That is how our God creates. That everything that he does is beautiful. That he is intimately connected to every piece of his creation. And because he created it, one of the authors I read this week says this, because he created it, he knows it fully. That's where the fullness of God's knowledge comes from from his intimate connection to every piece of what he has made. And if that's true about every piece of God's creation, it's true about you. That God knows you intimately because he has made and knit together every piece of you. that before the foundations of the world, before in the beginning, what was true is that God, God was thinking of you. That's what Ephesians 1 tells us. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us that before the foundation of the world, God had set his love upon you. That's what it means to be in Christ. There's this deep intimacy with the creator of the universe, the one that we have just described as transcendent, as above everything, before any cause, the first cause. The God who we worship is shrouded in mystery. And in some sense, unknowable to us, distinct from us. The words of Psalm 139 kind of describe the intimacy with this God who made everything. The psalmist says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Before a word is even on my lips, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you set your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from, the, from your presence? If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall guide me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be as night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. How wonderful are your works, O Lord? I know it very well. The psalmist is saying, how wonderful am I? God, you created me in love. 
this God who created everything in existence intimately knows and cares for you. And he loves you so much that even as we have, as a people, as individuals, have walked away from God and sin, that even then what God has said is, I have come for my people. That even as you have walked away from me, I am coming for you. And what that draws out of us, draws us into, uh, is two things. It brings us into repentance and it prepares us for revival. It brings us into repentance and it prepares us for revival. When we encounter, we talked about this some last week, when we encounter the greatness and the majesty of the God who created everything, the God who is at the center of the universe, whether we choose to recognize it or not, when we come into contact with that God, what we have to realize, what we are forced to reckon with is how much we have pushed him away. What we're forced to reckon with is how much of our daily lives we live in a distance, in an opposition to that God. And that is a fearful thing. And if that is all we are left with, then all we are left with is fear or even a hatred of God. That I know I have not done, I have not lived out of this relationship that I have been called into, and so I'm gonna push it away, I'm gonna shut it down, I'm gonna kill any awareness I have of that because I don't wanna know. But the God that we love and that we serve and that we worship is not only a God who is great and, and, and beyond us, not only a God who is eternal, but also a God who is eternally loving. And when that eternal love enters the picture, it changes our hearts. That what it does is it invites us into repentance in a way that only love can do. Because the best way... I, I'm rereading this book called uh, Shantaram. And as I was reading it this week, I was struck by the way the author uh, puts into words with this experience of love touching us as like. And for the little bit of background on what I'm gonna read you, uh, the story is about this, this man who was in a high, it's a, it's a piece of fiction, just for the record. It's about a man who was uh, this convict in New Zealand and uh, was put into prison because of the armed robberies he had committed to get money for drugs. So he's living in this maximum security prison and he escapes and makes his way uh, to Bombay, Mumbai in India. And while he's there, he, he meets a guy who becomes his guide and becomes a friend who takes him to visit his, his village out in rural India and he lives there for six months. And on the first night that he's there, oh, I almost lost it. Almost lost the illustration. Okay. Uh, for the first night that he's there, all of the, he sleeps on, like a, on, a, on a mat, on a bed outside, and all of the villagers sleep around him because they say to him, well, you must feel so alone. All of your family is somewhere else. All of your friends are somewhere else. You must be so alone. So we're going to sit here and keep you company so that you know that you're not alone. And right as this man is falling asleep, his friend's father reaches out and puts a hand on his shoulder. This is his reaction. He says, it may seem strange, and it may, in fact, be impossible for anyone else to understand, but until that very moment, 
I'd had no real comprehension of the wrong I'd done and the life I'd lost. While I'd committed the armed robberies, I was on drugs, addicted to heroin. An opiate fog had settled over everything that I thought and didn't even remember it about that time. And afterwards, during the trial and the three years in prison, I was sober and clear-headed, and I should have known then what the crimes and punishments meant for myself and my family and the people I'd robbed at the point of a gun, but I didn't know or feel anything of it then. I was too busy being punished and feeling punished to put my heart around it. It was only there in the village on the first night when a farmer's rough and calloused hand touched my shoulder. Only then and there did I see and feel the torment of what I'd done and of what I'd become. The pain and the fear and the waste, the stupid and unforgivable waste of it all. And my heart broke on its shame and sorrow. I suddenly knew how much crying there was in me and how little love. And I knew at last how lonely I was. But that's what God's love does when it comes into our hearts. That's the gift of it, is that it wakes us up and allows us to acknowledge, God, I have not lived out of this relationship of love towards you, that my life is given over to the worship of so many other things, including primarily myself. And when God's love touches us and it awakens us to acknowledging that, we, we get to, to acknowledge that not out of fear, but in great gratefulness for the love that God has poured onto us even in that very place, even knowing everything that is true about us. And it's in the experience of that love that comes to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we're able to put down all of the sin and all of the shame that clings so tightly to us is what Hebrews 12 says. That's what repentance is. It's coming before the Lord and admitting, Lord, these things are true about me and I'm, I'm laying them down. I'm leaving them here. Take them from me. And then what it does is it prepares us then for revival, to, for being revived, for running in the race that God has laid out before us with joy and with the freedom that comes from not having to constantly live under the shame and the sin and the weight of the guilt that so easily would press down upon us. And that's a gift of the Christian life is not beating ourselves up and reminding ourselves of how bad we are so we can feel bad enough and guilty enough to be motivated to do things for God. That's not the gospel at all. Not the gospel is before you or I did anything God has come for us. He's thrown our sins as far as the east is from the west and so as we come and lay those things before him, we walk into the freedom that he created us for before the beginning of time. That's the gospel. And all throughout Genesis, that's what we're gonna find. We're gonna find the gospel. That week in and week out, as we read over these stories, some of which are very crazy, what we're gonna find is the God who consistently calls us to repentance, to the laying down of ourselves, and all of these other things that we worship that have wrecked our lives and wrecked our world. And what we're gonna find there is that God wants to breathe revival over us. That this same spirit that, that verse two tells us was hovering over the deeps, the creative breath of God, the creative spirit of God that b before that blank canvas, that wild and wasteland was hovering over the waters like a mother bird is the image. The giver of life who was waiting to pour life out over the world, that same spirit is here with us, hovers over us, over our lives, in our hearts and is constantly pouring out his love into us, is waking us up, reviving us with the truth that you are more loved than you could ever imagine. As we walk through generous, generous, 
as we walk through Genesis, that's what we're gonna experience and see week in and week out is that generous, loving God. Calling us to repentance and calling us then to be revived. So I'm gonna invite uh, our worship team to come back up and they're gonna lead us in uh, kind of through the paces of that in our own hearts. That we'll have a chance through our singing uh, to respond and to, to repent, to kind of lay our sins before God. And then we'll have a chance to worship, uh, to respond in gratefulness and to pray and trust for, to look forward to God's revival in our own hearts uh, even this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, uh, just confess how inadequate my own words are to talk about what it means uh, that you were before there was time. And that before there was time, Lord, that you had your mind and your heart set on coming after us, coming after your people. And God, we uh, lay down even our, uh, our deep desire to understand everything. And pray that even as you open our eyes a little bit more, that you'd be opening our hearts beyond what we can see and picture, wrap our minds around. Lord, that you would draw us through the worship of you uh, into repentance and into the revival that you have for our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.